Hello, and welcome to another PMP Coffee Talk podcast. I'm Mark Portnoy, CEO of Portnoy Messenger Pearl and Associates, Inc., and today my address is called the State of the Union's Address. The underwhelming vote rejecting union representation in an Amazon facility in uh, Alabama, only half the eligible voters even bothered to vote, which is very unusual and strange. In my experience for decades, 80 to 90% or more employees generally vote, so something went on down there. And when the votes were tallied, only about a a third were for the union. But that shouldn't lead to a false sense of security for companies, whether they're organized or unorganized. Unions have been hurting. Only about 6% of the private sector is unionized today. And even when the public sector is added in, the number is still only about 12%. But a number of factors and trends should be putting employers on notice that union organizing attempts may be substantially more common and more difficult to defend against in these turbulent times, and that successfully negotiating your next agreement, if you are an organized company, may present new and difficult challenges for you. Looking at the non-union companies first, we have a president who has always been an ally of labor and who promises to be the most pro-union president ever seen. Evidence of this already exists with changes throughout the Department of Labor. There'll be appointments of pro-labor board members, and there already has been of the department's council and secretary. Employers should anticipate pro-labor reversal of Trump-era decisions as well as many new cases that are decided, being decided in much more liberal fashion. Areas of concern include the amount of time employers have to counter organizing attempts and how precisely unions can target groups of employees to, to organize them and to try and gain a foothold in a company by starting with the most pro-union group in the facility. Other game changes include the ease with which unions can engage employees in a variety of social media platforms, raising questions in their minds and concerns and looking to exploit any problems that they can learn about. And residual pandemic-related fears employees have about economic and job security, health benefits, workplace safety, and their ability to balance family needs with work requirements. In addition, employees have seen the success of the Drive for 15 campaign, which may encourage uh, uh, employees to look to engage in collective activity. It's not difficult to envision how unions can exploit these concerns in various forums to persuade employees that a union contract professionally negotiated provides strong protection and better economic and other working conditions for them. And all of this doesn't even take into account the new PRO Act Protect the Right to Organize Act that's being considered in Congress. The proposed legislation, which has already passed in the House, would greatly assist union organizing opportunities and severely restrict company options to counter a unionization effort. For example, it would prohibit mandatory company meetings, institute financial penalties for NLRA violations, and mandate arbitration to ensure initial contracts are successfully completed and that they result in an agreement, and the agreement would be under the terms that the arbitrator provides a third party with no interest in the long-term well-being of the company and who will tell the company what it can afford and how it must operate. 
If, as seems likely, all this will embolden unions to be more aggressive and engage in substantial organizing activity and to cause employees to seek outside assistance to help protect themselves from real or imagined concerns, employers would be wise to be proactive and start now to take those steps that will help them remain non-union. Here are some examples of the advice we give our clients uh, when they were talking about uh, taking being active in an anti-union uh, setting in their facilities. They, one, review the actual duties and responsibilities of supervisors to ensure they will be excluded from the bargaining unit and they can act on management's behalf. Two, review and structure the facility's operations to help impede a union from separating out a small unit to use it as an inroads into the entire company. Three, train the supervisors in management skills so they are never the catalyst for employees to support a union and so that they can deliver uh, votes by having earned the respect and trust of the employees. Four, train the supervisors to recognize initial behaviors indicative of an organization attempt, such as unusual secretive clusters of employees or quiet when the supervisor passes employees who are having a conversation and how to respond to union activity effectively and legally. Five, audit employee relations throughout the organization by reviewing any possible indications of favoritism or exclusion, for example, and to recognize and to be able to react to discontent or resentment. The company must not be only be fair, they must be perceived to be fair, both within each department and among departments, and they must be perceived to be consistent and interested in employee needs and concerns. Six, establish and engage in substantive two-way communication so employees understand company priorities, decisions, and actions, and have a genuine opportunity to raise questions and concerns and receive meaningful, timely responses, even anonymously. Seven, have a plan in place so a response to an organizing effort can be immediate, focused, and coordinated. And eight, audit your handbook and your policies and procedures so those you want in effect are in place before any union activities commence. We also anticipate difficult and challenging negotiations for successor agreements as a result of all, of, uh, all that has gone on in this year of COVID. Employees have experienced job, income, and safety security concerns to an unprecedented degree. Additionally, employees have learned that there are ways employers can accommodate life-work balance if they choose to. Union members will undoubtedly look to their unions to bargain for progress in not only wages and benefits, but conditions of employment as well. And workers who are deemed essential will want to be rewarded for the roles they played and the risks they took in supporting their employees during the pandemic. Unions, as highly political organizations subject to regular elections, will have to respond to any increased militancy by their membership. And for unions may be able to solicit and achieve support from what for years has been an uninvolved public to thank the workers who've helped them to survive the pandemic. All this entails that companies must be fully prepared to engage in difficult and context complex negotiations in their next contract cycle. And that preparation for, should review not just how best to respond 
to employ demands for higher wages, more paid time off, affordable, reliable health care, and income and safety protections during difficult times, but also how to present company proposals generated by unanticipated, unanticipated difficulties that arose during the past year to give the company the flexibility it needs to rapidly respond to changing circumstances. Employers will want to expand their options in as broad a range of emergency situations as possible so that the need to bargain and compromise under pressure is significantly reduced. And they may want to clarify the nature of act of God clauses in their agreements and what obligations they are relieved of when such conditions occur. More flexibility in transferring employees or having supervisors or other non-union employees perform bargaining unit work are examples of proactive opportunities employers might consider. Employers will also want the ability to control and monitor remote work preferences of employees, preferences derived both from necessity arising out of lifestyle changes required by circumstances in 2020, and of the recognition that they have been demonstrated to be a viable alternative. Management will want to protect themselves by ensuring the union acknowledges that necessary precautions have been taken, maybe by creating a safety committee engaged in relevant discussions while companies retain their ability to manage where safety conditions are a concern and where employees attempt to make use of vague rights to refuse to do work. State and federal expansion of paid time off benefits will undoubtedly lead to union proposals to retain and enhance them, and controls must be in place to avoid abuse and the enormous expense of being forced to hire more employees or having to provide overtime because of excessive rates of absenteeism. In times of crisis or unexpected stress, companies may want to have rights extended, for example, to make decisions that take ability and not just seniority into account when assigning work. Wage discussions will be complicated by all that has changed during the pandemic, and there will be pressure on both sides that will significantly impact goals and expectations. This all entails that how the negotiations are handled will be more important than ever. Management must proceed in a way that creates the best opportunity for successful outcome. When I get to the table, I focus on what constitutes a successful outcome, starting with the fact that labor management negotiations are different from most other negotiations in a very fundamental way. When negotiating the sale of a car or a house, for example, or the terms of a divorce, it is understood that the relationship is over, or at least that the interplay between the parties is substantially finished at the conclusion of the bargaining. In a union setting, the negotiations establish the relationship between the parties. They set out the terms upon which the parties will deal with each other going forward. And a clear win by either party can actually be detrimental to the success of the company if the terms it accepts are inconsistent with intelligent and competitive practices and costs, hurting all parties in the long run, into morale, skill retention, recruiting, and commitment if employees see themselves as beaten down or defeated. So companies have to carefully consider long and short-term goals throughout the bargaining process. For similar reasons, the process has to be conducted in a mutually respectable atmosphere. While table pounding and shouting are not uncommon, 
Positions will harden and the likelihood of reaching a consensus diminish if either side sees itself as being humiliated or embarrassed at the table. The union reps and the shop stewards need to be considered reliable and competent by the members they represent, or they can be voted out and replaced, or fail to be able to deliver a package. The company rep needs to maintain respect to be able to exercise the authority necessary uh, to implement decisions in the future and to have the cooperation they need to do so successfully. I generally ask companies I represent to write down everything they might like to achieve in the negotiations and to rate them one, two, or three, where one is essential, two would be great but can't be a deal breaker, and three would be nice if at all possible. This allows proposals, which are often complex and encompass many items, to be constituted for meaningful give and take, allowing items to be sacrificed or modified to help make progress in more important areas. Negotiations also have an important psychological element, Timing is critical. If management's early offers are too close to their actual goals, employees will wrongly assume there is more room for improvement than there really is and make settlements more difficult. When union proposals are too unrealistic, companies have to emphasize that fact over and over again, and that's essential to bring order to the proceedings. Although every negotiation is different, I do recommend achieving agreement on lesser matters prior to discussing major issues. First, so that it can be seen that making progress is realistic. And second, so that these, don't matters, become, these matters don't become more difficult to resolve as positions become more entrenched with weightier matters. Finally, whereas now difficult negotiations seem inevitable, it is important to consider engaging federal mediation and using them properly, because if used properly, they can provide an impotence towards settlements. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope my brief summary of union activity has been helpful. And of course, along with my team, I'm available uh, to answer questions or concerns or be of assistance in any way. My email address is, address is mb, like boy, portnoy, P-O-R-T-N-O-Y, at pmphr.com. My phone number is 516-921-3400. Be sure to come back and join us for our next episode.